Hey there, travelers. I'm Isabella. I'm Riley. I'm Angelica. And this is True Crime International. So, Isabella, where are you taking us today? Today, we're headed to a country that I want to visit so bad, Japan. This case Japan sounds is, awesome. I want to go to Japan so yeah. fucking bad. My dad was stationed there when he was in the Marines, and he loved it. Oh, I just, I just like like I just want to like walk through the city just for like even a day, you know? I have a whole plan. I will not go to Japan until I am financially secure enough that I don't have to worry about money while I'm there or at least like be able to save up enough for a proper trip to Japan. And I want to go for a month and I want to spend a week in Tokyo, a week in Kyoto, a week in Osaka, and then a week just in the countryside in a super traditional Japanese home. That's my dream. Honestly, that sounds amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So the case today is about the Miyazawa family. They were a family of four. There was Mikio, who was 44, his wife, Yasuko, who was 41. They had an eight-year-old daughter named Nina and a six-year-old son named Ray. And by all accounts, they were your average Japanese family, nothing special about them. Mikio worked for a London-based marketing company called Interbrand, which is a massive company that has offices in over 20 countries. They've worked with brands like Xerox, Microsoft, Nissan, and they were even the company that coined the term Wi-Fi. So this is like a big-ass deal to be working oh, for that wow. company, right? I didn't, I didn't know that Wi-Fi was like a coined term. Yeah, but I thought about it. It's like, where else would it have come from it, like it, it's, it's where does where does the phi come from like wire no idea. wireless okay well i, I don't know I'll i didn't look, look into the etymology of it <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I didn't look into the etymology of it but according to my research that's the brand that like coined the term it's not clear exactly what mikio did for the company but he was described by his colleagues as being very professional a nice guy he got along with everybody and he never made enemies And he actually worked from home a lot around the time of this case, which was really not common because this case happened back in the year 2000. Oh, yeah, Yeah. that's definitely not common to work from home in 2000, especially off of Wi-Fi. Exactly. Like he was working on the computer from home in the year 2000. That's really, really uncommon. That's that's super uncommon. Yasuko was a teacher of what I don't know. I couldn't find it. Just said teacher. But she was described as being very kind, very compassionate. She loved her job, especially since it allowed her to spend more time with her children. Teachers are heroes. So I believe that she was probably a hero. Thank you. I'm a teacher. Yes, you are. And we love you. Oh, I love you too. Nina was in second grade at the time of this case. She was a typical eight-year-old. She was full of energy. She was really playful. She loved to run around. And she played football and practiced ballet, and she loved them both. And by what football, I mean badass. soccer. Yeah. Oh, my God. Sporty. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> football, football like American football or football like European football? Football like not European football, football like how it is in the rest of the world. Like, like fo- football, football like actual okay. football. <laughs> <laughs> These international cases, it feels weird to call it soccer. And even now, like, since I live in Spain, I never use the word soccer. It's just football. 
As Wait, so we're Snowbeard. talking about soccer football? Yes. Oh. That's okay, what see. football is. Yeah, <laughs> well, you said I just never mind. Never mind. I misheard you, okay? Anyway, Little Ray had a speech impediment, which Mikio and Yasuko were seeking professional help in improving. According to reports, the speech impediment was a source of stress for Mikio and Yasuko because they were worried for their son's future if it couldn't be corrected. And I also I read somewhere, I don't know if there's any truth to this, but I read that uh, Ray was also stressed out about his speech impediment because he was worried about disappointing his parents. Is there like a, not a stigma, but is there something in Japan where if someone has a speech impediment, they're not as likely to be hired? I feel like that that's all a around the world too. thing. Okay. Yeah, I feel like because I knew kids with speech impediments in school and they were all, you know, getting... Holler at your girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> An ex of mine had a speech impediment that had to be corrected through professional help. So I feel like it doesn't really matter where it is in the world. Uh, maybe Ray felt more pressure because it is Japanese culture and Japanese in Japanese culture success like academic and professional success trumps pretty much everything else um yeah. it's like i well i don't think it's fair to say it trumps everything else but it's extremely important they put a lot more uh value into it than we do in the united states uh so i can understand why a little six-year-old boy would be so stressed out about having a speech impediment and i can understand yeah. why the the parents would be stressed out as well but they were trying to they would they had i believe at the time of this case they had just started uh, speech therapy for Ray. So in 1990, two years before Nina was born, Mikio and Yasuko bought a detached duplex house in the Setagaya ward of Tokyo. And okay, Tokyo is so huge. I knew it was the biggest city in the world, but I didn't realize just how big it was when I was looking into this case because the Setagaya ward, when you look at the map, it doesn't look like it's in Tokyo, but it is. Yeah, it's, it's it's just it's so massive. How but far it, how far from the city center is it? Do you know? So I Google mapped it, and it's about twenty five minutes driving from the Setagaya Ward to Tokyo Tower, which is in the heart of Tokyo. Um, but if you're taking public transportation, from what I could see on Google Maps, it takes around forty to fifty minutes using the train uh, and walking. It included walking time, so it's really not very far from the heart of Tokyo. It's super easy to get to. Like, it would be so easy to do for, like, a night out. Say you live in the Setagaya Ward and you want to go to downtown Tokyo for a night out, you can totally do it and no one has to DD. The Setagaya Ward is a quiet, safe, and residential area and just a short train ride to the heart of Tokyo, as we've already said. It's known as being very family-friendly with loads of green space, nice houses, international schools, good shopping, there's restaurants. And it's seen as being the best place for raising a family in Tokyo if you want to raise your family without the hustle and bustle of regular city life. And it's actually the most populous ward in Tokyo and the second largest overall because of that, because it's so family-friendly and residential. And honestly, when I was looking at pictures of it, it honest, it looks so so beautiful. It looks so nice. I would totally live there. Uh, and there's a neighborhood that's super close to Setagaya that's known for having really cool bars and secondhand clothing stores. So like, I'm there. I'm sold. Ooh, I want to yes. look it up now. It's really like the houses look really nice. There's tons of green space. There's trees everywhere. And I'm, to I'm oh, totally down. Oh, it does down look really nice. Right? 
It's there's beautiful. definitely like a little there's like a little shopping district with mm-hmm. like it looks like everyone's walking in the streets, like a little downtown area. That's I would awesome. totally live there. I'd live there. Yeah. And I I personally really like living close to big cities. I like living in a small town close to a big city. I like having access to the big city, but not actually living in it, you know? Close but close but not in. You get all the benefits, but mm-hmm. none of the <laughs> And it's none cheaper. of the other stuff. Yeah, definitely cheaper. Okay, so in order for this case to make sense, I have to give you a background of the house. So if you look at pictures on the internet, which you can find very easy, easily by typing in uh, the Setagaya murders, you'll see that it looks like a very normal house, but it did serve as more of a duplex. Mikio, Yasuko, Nina, and Ray lived on one side of the house, and Yasuko's mother, sister, and brother-in-law lived on the other side. And there was no way to get from one half of the house to the other within the house. So if like Yasuko's mother wanted to visit, she would have to go outside and then knock on their front door. It's that's, totally divided. Yeah. That's nice. They like get their own space, but they like still get to be together as a family. Yeah. It was very common in Japan for multiple generations to be in the same house. Yeah. Um, but it is nice that they still like got their own privacy, but was still very close to their parents. I would totally live that way with my parents. Me too. I love my mom and dad. They're my best friends. <laughs> My mom and dad are my best friends, too. (laughs) And you'll notice looking at the house, if you find pictures of it online, it's surrounded by trees and grass, and there are seemingly no other houses around them. And that's because throughout the 90s, a park, which was very near the Miyazawa house, was being expanded. So a lot of the neighbors were moving out of the neighborhood in order to make room for the park. So by 2000, the Miyazawas were one of only a handful of families still living in the neighborhood. And by looking at a picture of the house, you really wouldn't know that it was in Tokyo, that it was technically, well, not technically, it is in a city. You'd think that they were living in the countryside somewhere. Like most of the pictures you see on the internet are from the front of the house and it just looks isolated. Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. Like it's on like a countryside, maybe some farmland. Mm -hmm. But also I find it interesting that neighbors were moving out to make room for a park. Like wouldn't you want to live near the park? I think they were expand. I think they were tearing down houses to build the park, though. How about like a national park or like a park? No, park? just like a park for people to go to. And huh, interesting. Yeah. But even though the house looked isolated from the front, it wasn't. In fact, the busiest part of the park, uh, it was right behind their house. And you can find pictures of the back of the house, and it's literally it's the house, and then like trees, and it's a gate, like right there. They were right up next to the park. Uh, and they were right by the busiest part, which was this skate park. And it was really noisy and it was a huge bother to the family, but especially for Mikio, because as we said, he was working from home at the time of our story. So it was super disruptive for him. So it was super disruptive for him. And he went out several times to yell at the people at the skate park. One witness even reported seeing Mikio tell off members of the Bosozoku, which was, it was like this, or sorry, is like this Japanese motorcycle gang. Though I think the last report does need to be taken with a grain of salt uh, because there were a lot of reports that seemed a bit more dramatic. They seemed very dramatic and like it could have just been made up. But he was definitely out there telling people off in the skate park all the time, telling people to be quiet. The noise problem was such a bother to the family that they actually made plans to move out of their house and into a new place. Since the skate park was still expanding, they knew they'd never get the peace and quiet they wanted in that house. 
So by December 2000, they had planned to move within the next few months. But the family, unfortunately, never got the opportunity. On December 30th, 2000, Japan was gearing up for their big New Year's celebrations to ring in the new millennium. That's right. Japan didn't consider the start of the new millennium to be until January 1st, 2001. So while the rest of the world was saying goodbye to the last millennium in 1999, that new year was nothing special in Japan because to them, they still had one more year in the millennium. Oh, that's weird. That's odd. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's really interesting, though. I looked into it, and it's because um, essentially the start of the millennium is year one, not year yeah. zero. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it makes yeah. a lot of sense to me. It, it definitely make, does. But... It makes a lot of sense. I think there, basically the rest of the world saw it as like, ooh, new number in front of the year, new millennium. <laughs> That's how it works. Japan was like, no, you dumbasses. It's 2001. And when I first was reading about the case, I was reading this blog post that said, uh, you know, it was the penultimate day of the last millennium. And I was like, no, it wasn't. This case happened in the year 2000. And then I got educated. <laughs> they told you. They told me. I was like, whoever wrote this is dumb. But it turns out I'm the one that's dumb. <laughs> Educating yourself is important. We all make progress. Yeah. Well, after I saw it a couple of times, I was like, wait, maybe that wasn't a mistake. And then I learned. So on Saturday, December 30th, 2000, the Miyazawas were preparing for celebrations like everyone else. The family went shopping around six in the evening and then around seven, Yasuko called her mother next door. They rarely just dropped in on one another, even though they lived next door and were family because the Japanese really value privacy. And they honor other people's privacy. So if they wanted to meet up, they would always call each other first instead of just knocking on the door. I respect that. I do too. I think that's really nice. So Nina went over to her grandmother's house and watched TV until around 9.30 that evening. And the very last activity we know in the house was Mikio checking a password-protected email at 10.38 p.m. But not long after that, the worst happened. Witnesses on a walk outside recalled hearing what sounded like an argument around 10 p.m. Nothing physical, no blood-curdling screams, more like a heated argument between a couple. Around half an hour after that, one of the family members next door recalled hearing a loud banging noise coming from the other half of the house, but they didn't think anything of it. They should have, though. The following morning, Yasuko's mother tried to call her daughter, but she couldn't get through, she didn't know it at the time, but the phone line had been cut. Remember, this is the year 2000. This is when everyone used landlines. So cell phones weren't very common. Yeah, so, so could someone cut it from the outside? I think so. Okay. But as you'll see, it, that actually doesn't even matter in this case, but we'll get to it. Gotcha. After a few tries, she got worried and went over and knocked on the front door, but there was no answer. She used her spare key to open the door and walked in on something that no family member should ever see. There, lying at the bottom of the stairs, which he had clearly fallen down, was Mikio, and he was dead from multiple stab wounds, at least one of which was to the head. Yasuko's mother rushed up the stairs to see what had happened to the rest of the family. She immediately found her daughter and granddaughter, both of whom had dozens of stab wounds, far more than Mikio. I couldn't get any information on exactly how many times they had all been stabbed and where, 
But the general consensus from my sources is that Yasuko and Nina were in the worst condition and had been stabbed way past the point of death. Lastly, there was little Ray, who was found in his bedroom where he had been strangled. Horrified and devastated by her discoveries, Yasuko's mother called the authorities and they descended upon the house in full force to start their investigation. This is what they believe to have happened on the night of December 30th, 2000. Based on the evidence, they theorized that the killer entered the home by climbing a tree in the park behind the house and entered the second-story bathroom by removing the screen in the window. He then went to Ray's room where he strangled the little boy. Mikio, hearing the commotion upstairs, went to go investigate, only to find his son being murdered. Mikio fought the killer fiercely and even managed to injure the killer. However, Mikio was killed by a stab wound to the head with a sashimi knife that the killer had on him. Sashimi is like sushi, right? Yeah, sashimi is raw fish sliced very thinly. Gotcha, okay. So it's got to be a sharp knife to slice raw fish really thinly. Exactly. The killer had stabbed Mikio with such force that part of the blade broke off in his head. Mikio then either fell down the stairs or was pushed, and the killer moved on to Yasuko and Nina, who the killer stabbed with the now broken sashimi knife as well as a kitchen knife from the home. So, I, how do they know that the killer had been injured by Mikio? Was, was there blood found from the killer? Oh, oh, just wait. Okay, okay. We're, we're getting to that. I just, like, wonder if the killer maybe, like, intended for no one to hear this and, like, or for, like, the to catch the whole family off guard because of the fact that he started by strangling the little boy. Yeah. That's why they believe Ray was first because he was the only one that wasn't stabbed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's also why they believe Mikio to be, uh... Mikio to have found the killer killing Ray uh, because Mikio was found in a much different condition than the women were. Okay, that makes sense. Now, if you're a morbid bitch like myself, you might have wondered before what killers do after they've murdered people. I don't know why I find this fascinating, but I do. But like, what do you do after you've done one of the most egregious things a human can possibly do? Like what comes immediately after that? Well, I mean, if you're like the Golden State Killer, you just hang out for a while. <laughs> Seriously. Have a glass oh. of water, maybe it's, watch some TV, make yourself a sandwich. <laughs> it's interesting well, I think- to me, but it's also like the fact that some of these killers like legitimately like go about and do stuff around the home. It's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like already what the so- fuck was wrong with you? But now, right? especially like. What? It's be- it's that it's that like mentality that like they're so cocky and they have so much control over this person that like after they've murdered them they 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 have control of their house now and they can do whatever they want and they're too good to get caught by anything left behind in the home. You guys it's are kind so of like, on the right track. And it's oh, kind God. of like taunting like the Golden State Killer a lot of his victims were alive when he would walk around the home and so they just had to lay there and listen to him walk and pace and do whatever he wanted while they're like terrified laying in their bed you guys are so on the right track so after massacring this entire family in their own home the killer made himself comfortable 
He remained in the house for two to ten hours after the murders. He treated his injuries with the family's first aid kit. <laughs> he had a nap on the sofa. He made himself some tea. He ate some melon. He ate some ice cream. He shat in their toilet and didn't flush. <laughs> and he even used the computer for a bit before he left. I'm just saying that this killer doesn't deserve that ice cream. And shame on them. No, he does not deserve ice cream. You toilet after you had a shit. (laughs) It wasn't me. (laughs) I was fucking one, yes. (laughs) The killer had left the house absolutely crawling with evidence. Because not only did he do all that stuff, but he left both of the murder weapons there. His DNA was absolutely everywhere. His shoe prints were all over the house, which is just like adding insult to injury because in most Asian cultures, you take your shoes off when you enter the house. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In my house, you take your shoes off when you enter the house. (laughs) In my house, you take your shoes off when you enter the house. And a lot of Spaniards think I'm weird for it. But I'm like, no, don't track in your dirty shoes. Then I just have to clean the floor more often, dude. That's more for me. And like, I like to walk around barefoot. I don't want to get all your nasty shit on my feet. (laughs) Anyway, so his shoe prints were all over the house. And he even left a bunch of clothes. He left a hat, a jacket, a shirt, gloves, a scarf, a hip bag, and a handkerchief. Did he leave naked? What could he have possibly been wearing? Unless he brought another change of clothes with him. That's what I think. Because if he was smart, he brought a bag and he knew he was going to get bloody because he brought that freaking sashimi knife. And he knew that thing was sharp. And so he thought ahead of time and he said... Well, I'm going to look pretty freaking weird walking out of their house covered in blood. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll just pack an extra change of clothes just in case. That's what I think. Because I believe the hip bag was empty for the most part. Uh, so yeah. he probably had a change of clothes in the hip bag and then just got the hell out. But he, he just left all the clothes there. All of them. He doesn't seem very smart. Or he's a genius. <laughs> yeah, or that. I don't, I, I don't, I don't even know what to think. But there was an absolute media frenzy around this case. To me, from what I gathered reading online, this case in Japan is what the Jean Benet Ramsey case is to the United States. And living in such a familial community, people were horrified that something as awful as the seemingly random massacre of a completely normal, lovely family could happen in their community. And especially because Eastern cultures are very uh com- they're very community based they they care about the collective good whereas in the west we tend to be a lot more in- individualistic so i think this felt like a lot more it felt like a betrayal to the community in a way so if it's if it's like the john benet ramsey case are there a lot of theories that go along with it yes but we'll get to that yes <laughs> uh but like bella said people were shocked and i mean it's reasonable uh that they were when you look at the crime rates in japan because they tend to be on the lower side of things like in comparison to the united states the u.s has around four times the amount of crime that japan does and that might not seem like a big difference but it is when the numbers increase and looking into more specific crimes such as gun related deaths in 2010 japan had zero deaths per one million And the U.S. had approximately 110 deaths per 1 million. 
Um, Honestly, yeah, that, that seems low. Right? <laughs> I think that, that sounds low. low. Yeah, it does. When you like, when you live in the U.S., it seems like there's so many. Like, there, I mean, there is so many cases of gun violence here. The fact that I was pleasantly surprised that it was only 110 deaths per million in the U.S. is really sad. Yeah. It is. It is awful. Yeah. Since this case occurs in 2000, I want to give an idea of what crime looked like around that time. In the year 1989, there were around 1.3 robberies and 1.1 murders per 100,000 people in Japan. In regards to the crimes that did happen, the Japanese were able to solve 75.9% of robberies and 95.9% of homicides. That's how I wish our I wish our statistics like, sounded like that. Those are high solve rates. And like that seems really great on the surface, but I do want to say that there's some claims that this is because the Japanese justice system can rely heavily on confessions and there's some proof that suspects can be treated rather unfairly and it's the lack of safeguards that increase false confessions. So we want to mention that because the high numbers could have been affected by this darker side to the justice system, which exists most places. I want to mention something interesting about Japan. Just like a, like it's a, it's a cultural thing, and it, I, it speaks to how generally safe the country is. When people go out, say 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 you ride your bike to the store to Seven Eleven, because Seven Eleven is huge in Japan. You you can just leave I your love bike that out. Seven Eleven is huge in Japan. <laughs> I think Seven Eleven is Japanese in origin. Really, I love Seven Eleven. I love Seven Eleven. I don't think it's American in origin. I'm pretty sure it came from somewhere in play. Asia. Yeah. And 7-Eleven is, like, so much better in Japan than it is in the States from what I've seen on the internet. Like, you can get actual quality food there and not just the shit that we have that not somehow passes for food. sandwiches that have been there for a week. 7-Eleven <laughs> uh, like, was uh, started by a dude, Joe Thompson, in Dallas, Texas. Unfortunately, oh, shit, really? <laughs> Joe, no. as soon as you said Joe Thompson, <laughs> no, it was 1927, though. That's nuts. That was a while ago. That is a while ago. Japanese people are so concerned, like, not concerned, they really value freshness in their food. And so, if something has just been sitting out for a few hours, they will then put it on sale because it's no longer to them, it's no longer fresh. And I'm like, I wish that's how it was here, right? That's, that's how it should be everywhere. Eat the freshest food. But if you like ride your bike to 7-Eleven, you can just leave it outside and not chain it up. In fact, most people don't because there's just this trust that no one will steal, steal your bike. I wish I had that kind of trust in the people that live around me. I, I definitely don't. But I just find that really interesting that people trust that much that you can just leave your bike outside 7-Eleven and it will be there when you get back. Is it common to not lock their cars in Japan? I don't know that specifically, but I wouldn't be surprised because I know that uh, if, like, if you're at a restaurant and you want to go to the bathroom, but you don't want to bring your phone because it's gross, you can just leave it on the table and no one will take it. I always bring my phone anyways. I get bored. <laughs> <laughs> I get bored very easily. <laughs> there was a lot of public pressure on investigators to find the killer and the Japanese police spared no expense. 
To date, this is one of the biggest investigations in Japanese history. And over the course of the investigation, 246,000 police were involved in the case. Like almost a quarter million people. That's like like police officers? Police officers, investigators, I think um, maybe lawyers as well. But like the total number of people that have worked on the case directly, 246,000. That's crazy. Isn't that insane? They have 16,000 pieces of information taken from the public. They have 12,000 pieces of evidence. And just like they have all sorts of DNA and both murder weapons from the killer. It's insane. Maybe he died on his walk home. <laughs> I hope so. But I also think... Karma. <laughs> that if, uh, if like, a body was found, they'd be like, hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm, seems mm. could be linked. <laughs> Interesting. But let's talk about the murder weapons, specifically the sashimi knife brought by the killer. I've read conflicting reports, but either the killer bought the knife at a nearby shopping center in uh, Setagaya or at a shop in the Kanagawa prefecture. Wherever it was, people described seeing a young man in quote-unquote skater-type clothing at the store where the knife was purchased the day before the murders. And it stood out to them because the clothing wasn't appropriate for the weather at the time. That's interesting because wasn't there a skate park right behind their house? Yeah, but I mean, this could have been uh, at a nearby shopping center, but it could have been all the way in the Kanagawa prefecture, which is not Tokyo. Um, and so whichever it was, like, I don't know that they would have immediately associated the person with the skate park nearby. Not only that, but the sweater left behind at the scene was one of only 130 that were made of that specific sweater. So if they could just track the purchases of the sweater, they could potentially find their man, but they were only able to find 12 people who bought the sweater and none of them were determined to be the killer. Were these sweaters, like, expensive designer sweaters is that why only 130 were made i have no idea i couldn't i couldn't find that out that's interesting because if they are maybe he had money 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 they also analyzed the killer's feces which he had so graciously (laughs) left behind in the toilet disgusting disgusting and they determined that he had eaten sesame seeds and string beans oh my god i hate that Oh my god. <laughs> I've seen so people gross. I've seen people online say that this is like a mama's boy meal and that he's a probably he's probably a, a sad sod that still lives with his mother, but to be honest, I think people are just projecting. Probably. Like sesame seeds and string beans don't indicate anything to me. Yeah. That's I like string beans. Good. That's a very those are very specific and also not very filling. Sesame seeds and string beans. <laughs> Interesting, Neil. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, investigators also found sand at the bottom of the hit bag left by the killer. And I love this so much, but they were able to analyze the sand and determine that it came specifically from the Edwards Air Force Base in California. So, California? Yeah. Could the killer have been a visiting American? Again, but I feel like. But wouldn't they have pointed out that he was American or looked American when they saw him buying the knife in the weird clothes? Get ready, get ready. It gets better. Or (laughs) worse. I don't know which. (laughs) 
Weeks turned into months, and months turned into years with this case. Despite all the evidence they had, investigators couldn't trace the crime to any one person. In 2006, some hope was put back in the case when they tested the DNA from the blood at the scene, because uh, DNA testing had improved a lot in the six years since the murders. The blood is a big deal in this case. Analysis of the blood proved that the killer was indeed male, but it also showed that the killer was likely to be mixed race. While the DNA indicated that the killer's father was of East Asian descent, it also indicated that his mother was of European descent, likely from the Mediterranean or Adriatic regions. The genes from his father's side occur in one out of every five Koreans, one in ten Chinese, and one in thirteen Japanese. This has led investigators to suspect that the killer could not be in Japan or not be Japanese at all. I like the silence. I'm just so baffled. Right? Like, my mind is in a, a knot. Like, I just... Also, like, if he's not from Japan, like, how does he randomly pick this family? I'm confused. Uh, okay, so the the East Asian gene, I suppose. I don't know what else to call it. I don't know the specific name of the, the gene. Uh, I mean, he would clearly look enough like a Japanese person that he didn't totally stand out to people on the street. However, I mean, he could, I mean, he could have so easily been Korean or Chinese and just blended in really easily. But I, I have a theory. I haven't read this anywhere, but just based on my upbringing, since I grew up dual national, that he could have uh, had a Japanese father and a, you know, European descended mother grown up in the United States, but maybe still had family in Japan and went back often because that's how okay. I grew up. I grew up in the United States, but to... that would make a lot of sense. Exactly. I, like I, I used to go to England all the time when I was a kid. And so I'm of the mindset it could be something like that. And a lot of times when you fly to Japan, you fly out of California, but that mm -hmm. wouldn't explain why he had the Air Force Base sand in his we'll, bag. We'll come back to that. Okay. Physically, they believe the killer to be around 5 foot 5 or 170 centimeters tall and to have a very thin build, which sounds about right if he does have East Asian genes. Many East Asians have a very slender build. They estimate his birth year to be between 1965 and 1985, putting him between 15 and 35 at the time of the murders, because based on the physicality required to commit the crimes, he would have had to have been around that age. But still, like, that's... A huge difference. 15? I don't think he was as young as 15. And I, I don't, don't think, think he was, was as either. old as 35. I do. Th I feel like somewhere in the 20s would work. Yeah, probably. It does seem believe... really messy, which I feel like is more common when uh, murderers are younger. Mm -hmm. I agree. It seems nuts. And also the fact that they... Never mind. Never mind. Just cut that out. <laughs> I was going to say the fact that he tried to strangle the boy before, like, even attempting to restrain either of the parents seems very, like, he's very confident in himself. Mm -hmm. Confident in his abilities. They also believe him to be right-handed based on the injuries to the Miyazawa family. But despite everything that the police have and know about the killer, he has never been caught. Neither his DNA nor his fingerprints are in their system. So, I mean, it really could be anybody. 
I mean, he could have been a person who was extremely familiar with Japan, but didn't actually live there and went back to whatever country he came from, maybe the United States. But at the same time, the hit bag could have very easily been bought secondhand, could have been borrowed from somebody. Has his DNA and fingerprints been run through systems in other countries? Because it's hard to believe that someone who commits a crime like this only does it once. Like yeah. you, you'd have to believe that they did it again. Mm-hmm. And if he, and if he is from another country, like say he is from the United States, maybe he committed crimes here too. Oh yeah, I mean, I've read that the Japanese authorities want to do that, but I don't know if they have to date. Okay, because I isn't. I need to look it up before I say it, before I put it in the episode. But isn't there like an international criminal database that they made after 9-11? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And they did that pretty much for the reason, like this sort of incident, for this sort of case. I'm confused as to where the yelling came from. Who was yelling? Well, if Mikio, he walked in on someone murdering his son... I imagine you're not going to be quiet about that. But someone thought it was like a couple arguing. Yeah, someone thought it was a couple. Maybe it was just muffled yelling and they couldn't tell if it was a man and a woman or, you know. They do believe the the crash that the family heard was Mikio falling down the stairs. That makes sense. Oh, yeah, that does make a lot of sense. So there are theories all over the internet regarding this case. And if you're interested, you can go check them out. Uh, I could not by any means get through all of them in just one episode. Um, but there are some that speculate that the murders could have been done by as many as three killers, but I'm not sold on that theory, to be honest. I'm not sold on that either. either. No. Because if there was three people, wouldn't three people have stuck around and there would be three sets of DNA and three sets of fingerprints? I feel like it would have been either, too. Yeah. I could be sold on maybe two if you gave me a super convincing argument, but I'm of the mindset that it's it's one guy. Me too. There's another theory that says the killer could have been a traveling criminal because six hours after the bodies of the family were discovered, a young man went to a medical center at the Tobu Niko station, which is a few hours away from Setagaya. Medical personnel there said that a man with a wound in his hand that went down to the bone refused to give his name or say how he got the injury in his hand in the first place. The staff thought it was really strange, but they treated him nonetheless and sent him on his way. It's entirely possible that this could have been the killer, because even though it was a few hours away, it was six hours after the bodies were discovered. He had plenty of time. So that that could have been the killer. And aren't there, like, trains that go to a lot of different places in Japan? Oh, Japan has the best train public transportation system Like, he could have just hopped on a train and gotten there. Yeah, and the Miyazawa house was only a few kilometers away from a train station that connected to all over Japan. Japan has the best trains. They just do. I do think that the the traveling criminal holds a lot of credence. I I buy that one. Me too. too. Especially especially if he's someone that isn't from around the area and but still knows his way around Japan and so Mm -hmm. no one would recognize him. Mm Mm-hmm. One other theory, which was presented by Fumiya Ichihashi, who's an author who published a book on the case in 2015. He posits that the killer could have been part of the South Korean military based on the dirt found at the scene, which he claims matches the South Korean province the killer could be from. 
He also alleges that he has the killer's fingerprints and that they match up perfectly with the ones found at the crime scene. I'm not sure anything will ever come from these allegations, but they're out there and they're interesting to think about. How does he have the killer's fingerprints? Yeah, and also, I never read anything in any other reports about dirt found at the scene, only the sand, and that was connected to California, not South Korea. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, I mean, I... Maybe the I, sand is what he's referring to? But that's Dirty not from South Korea, that's from California. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. Because it could have come from his shoes, but then at the same time, he would have been walking around before. I mean, the, the book is in Japanese, and as far as I can tell, there are no English translations. This is just what I read uh, from an, a, a summary that was translated. So I don't know all the details into why he has these theories. But I mean, I could totally buy that the killer is South Korean because statistically, based on his genes, he's more likely to be South Korean than he is to be Japanese. Yeah. What was the other one? South Korean or Korean, Japanese and Chinese? Yeah. So it's one in five Koreans, one in five Chinese and one in, sorry, one in five Koreans, one in 10 Chinese and one in 13 Japanese. Gotcha. Gotcha. But overall, this case is cold. And it's at this point kind of an urban legend in Japan. Like I said, it's kind of like a Jean Benet Ramsey sort of thing uh, for the Japanese people. There's just, there's nowhere to go with this case. In November 2019, Japanese authorities asked the Miyazawa's relatives if they could tear down the house they once all occupied together. The house has been sitting there rotting for almost 20 years, and it poses a danger for anyone who gets too close to it, but the family refused. They want the house to stay standing until an arrest is made. But I would I think, too. Yeah. That's a big statement too. Like, yeah. power, power to them. The house is it, still there. It, it also, yeah, it puts pressure on the police as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the police want it gone. And like, I get it. No one lives in that house. Why would you? Yeah. <laughs> but as far as I can tell, it's it's still there. You can you can see the house. You, I, you can't really go into it. They have this like they have this thing surrounding the house. Not like a, it's like a fence that's covered in tarp. Oh, so you can't really see it that well either. No, they they really want to discourage people to go into it. But I'm sure that if someone really, really, really wanted to, they could get in. I wonder if there's YouTube videos about it. You know, like Ooh. those people who go who go exploring abandoned places. Yeah. I wonder if there's one of those. I, I'm not sure. I feel like there's a lot there would be legal ramifications to going into that house since it's technically, I think, still a crime scene. But they want to keep yeah, the... But some, sometimes people don't care about legal ramifications. Oh, no, they don't. <laughs> the family wants to keep the house up as a symbolic thing, but also because what if they go back into the house one day and find a new piece of evidence that cracks the case? Although, what else could they possibly find that could crack the case? They have the killer's fingerprints. They have his blood. They have his shit. Literally, what more could you need? But they don't exactly. necessarily have the fingerprints, though, right? I thought more sand. They do have the fingerprints. Oh, I thought only that guy had them. Cut that out. Did no, he no, no, not he, flush the toilet? He didn't flush the toilet. He just left his shit there. Rude. Oh my god, it's really rude. 
But that author claims to have the killer's fingerprints and that they match the fingerprints that were found at the crime scene. And that's how he says he knows who the killer is. But again, I... Why won't he say? <laughs> Get his DNA. I don't know. Yeah, wait for... Do what, the, do what they did with the Golden State Killer. Wait for him to throw away a bottle of water or something. Yeah, because once you throw away trash, isn't it prob- public property? I think so. But maybe the laws are different in Japan. Actually... In Japan, it's really hard to find public in garbage Japan. Cans? Yeah, in Japan, it's really hard to find public garbage cans. But at the same time, they're also really, really good about um, disposing of garbage and recycling in general. Yeah, I which thought is such they an, were. That's such an interesting dichotomy. But yeah, that is the case of the Miyazawa family. That's honestly, I'm going to, this is one of those cases, like you said, with John Bonet Ramsey that I'm going to think about. It's, it's really a thinker. thinker. Yeah. What else could they possibly have? Like they have everything that they could ever need to catch the killer, but they just never did. Wow. I'm of the mindset. I don't think he lives in Japan. I don't think he does either. Or at least is Maybe. maybe not originally from Japan or has spent a significant portion of his life in another country. Did he say, or not he, did what you read say if he said anything at all at the hospital? Like, did he talk at all? Uh, What I read just said that he refused to give his name and say what happened to his hand. But I don't know if he had a chat with anyone. I'm wondering if he, like, could read and speak Japanese, but he had an accent. And so he didn't want to talk because then people would know that he wasn't actually from there. And then it would kind of like give away his identity a little bit. Like if that's a good thing, like if they did hear them talk and they were like, yeah, this guy came in and he definitely had an American Japanese accent and he had this cut on his hand, then they would almost know for sure that he had at least some ties to the United States. Yeah, I was thinking because that author says that he thinks the killer was part of the South Korean military, but also the sand found in the hit bag was from an American airbase. So maybe he was. He could be an American soldier that was stationed in South Korea. Yeah. Because there are a lot of, uh, there is a, a, pre- a U.S. military presence in South Korea. Mm-hmm. But then why go to this, like, suburb of Tokyo and kill this family? Like, what ties did he have to the family to kill them? That's the thing is, I mean, they they looked into Mikio to see if he had any, you know, ties to any gangster activity, to the mob, whatever. And he's just, there was nothing. They were just an average family. And I think what makes this case so terrifying and so confusing is it just seems to be completely random. I did read one report that said on December 25th, so five days before they were murdered, uh, Yasuko was telling her father-in-law that she had seen a man sitting in a car right outside their home, had parked there. And it was really unusual because there was parking really close to the home but he wasn't there he was specifically in front of the house that's terrifying right that's like stuff of horror movies this case is so scary to me and also incredibly fascinating yeah i agree but at the end of it i think it's really likely that the house will be standing forever until it crumbles i bet it will because they don't find any information. If they don't find the killer, that house is going to stay there. I think as long as... I think the only way they could catch the killer is if he committed another crime in Japan. But if he 
can live in another country and does live in another country, I don't know that they ever will. Yeah, that's why I was curious if he if they had run his his information in other countries to see if he had committed crimes anywhere else. Yeah. I'm Maybe he sure. was a hitman. Who knows? Maybe he was a hitman. Yeah. Mikio did work for a big company. Yeah. But again, sure they made... didn't find any nefarious ties with him at all. So many yeah. theories. I know. So many theories. <laughs> we yeah, should have, this... you know what we could do, Bella? Is if you wanted to look up some more of the theories, we could make a small Patreon episode with more theories. I would love that. Or. Since we are not super active on Patreon yet, uh, if you want to follow us on social media, it's at True Crime INTL on both Twitter and Instagram. And we also have a Facebook group. And if you want to join our Facebook group and come talk to me about this case and the theories or just Japan in general, I would love to. If you've been to Japan, please put pictures on our group and tell me your stories. I just really if love you Japan. Live in Japan. If you live <gasps> in Japan and you know anything about the case... Yeah, tell let us, us know. If you know anything deets. about the case, if we got anything wrong about your culture, please let us know. If you just want to tell us more about your culture, again, please let us know. Yeah, I just, I love Japan and this case is a mind fuck. We're all in. Well, y'all, this has been True Crime International and we hope you've enjoyed your stay. 